Well, welcome to this show, everybody, and uh, a fun conversation, hopefully today, as we talk about some differences, right? So when I teach comparative religions and worldviews to my high school students, a lot of times you say, okay, here's how the different religions and what they view about God, here's what they view about Jesus, or here's what they view about a savior, here's what they view about sin. And it makes maybe some people from the outside go, okay, like every religion has scripture, every religion has a God, every religion has a way to maybe to be saved or to go to some sort of afterlife. And they start looking very similar. Uh, but we want to talk about today some of the big differences between religion, specifically between Islam and Christianity. Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? A claim that you sometimes hear, maybe often, maybe not as often if you're not involved in those sort of conversations, but also a claim that when you kind of hear sometimes I get responses like, well, clearly no. And that's it. We don't have to talk about this anymore. So today we're actually going to have a deeper conversation about religious pluralism, but mainly focusing on differences between Islam and Christianity. As you see there, my guest on the screen, Dr. Andy Bannister wrote this wonderful book, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? There it is. He put it up there as well. Uh, Dr. Bannister is the director of SOLAS, an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Center for Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology and an adjunct faculty member at Wycliffe College, University of Toronto. Uh, I always say that he is a very unique person and that he is a Christian with a PhD in Islamic studies or Quranic studies. Uh, and so uh, very interesting there and in how he got into that world, but also interviewed him a while back, back in 2016, we just figured out. Uh, I include a link there below in the description on his other book, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist or the Consequences or Dreadful Consequences of Bad Arguments. So Dr. Bannister, thanks for coming back on the show to discuss your newest book. Hey, with it's, me. Uh, it's fantastic to be back again with you, Ryan. And that, that beard is, is that new? That I'm sure that wasn't there last time. It, it was not there last time that we, uh, yeah. So let's see, let's see if I can pull this up here really quick for those listening. Yeah, here's, here's what I found for the last time when I met you back in 2016. There we both were. Uh, yeah, oh, very. <laughs> now let's I get look, that off I the look screen. Young and, and you look less hurt. Put this way: when when Movember comes around, my friend, you are just ready to go. I am ready to go. Although you know the the ironic thing is that it's coming off in November. For those who don't know, I am just growing this out until the birth of my son, and so he's doing the end of November. And so once he's son, it, once he's born, it's coming off. But hey, maybe that'll be that December. That poor but... kid, when he first sees you, when he first comes into the world, he's going to think that is hairy, and then the next day he's going to wake up traumatized because he won't recognize you. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's videos on YouTube of that where like a dad, like with this like two or three year old, if anybody's seen these, where the dad has a beard like this, holding his three year old girl, puts her down on the ground, goes off, shaves it off, picks her back up. and She starts weeping and crying. It's like, who are you? I don't even recognize you. Um, so hopefully it won't be too traumatizing if I do it in the first like day or two of his life. <laughs> um, awesome. But uh, all right, Dr. Bannister. So. I'm kind of curious because, you know, I got some very interesting responses when people saw me reading this book. Again, like I told you, like some were just very short. Like, did he say the answer is no and leave the pages blank? Um, or it's just clearly not because Muslims don't believe in Jesus. Christians believe in Jesus. Clearly, it's a different God. And so I'm kind of curious, like how common is this claim that Muslims and Christians worship the same God? And why did you kind of feel a need to write a book addressing this question? Yeah. Well, let's start with a, with a short answer thing, Ryan. I often say, you know, a lot of the most important questions in the world yeah, sure, we can give short answers to. Those are pretty useless answers. If somebody walks up to you as a Christian and says, see, do you believe that Jesus was God? And you go, yes. That's probably <laughs> needs more than that. Or if you ask a Muslim and they say, do you think Jesus was God? They're going to go, no. Now, as a Christian, you're going to want a bit more than that. So on the identity of Jesus question, you could argue it's got a one word answer, but more is required. And the same is true of the Muslims and Christians 
worship the same god. Whatever you believe, probably looking at your audience, most of your audience are going to think the answer is is no. But yeah. that's but if they haven't thought the next step through, with all due respect, I would say I suspect that is because they're not talking to non-Christians. Because a non someone who's not a Christian doesn't have our Christian commitment. If you say no, they're going to go, well, well, but why not? Surely it's the same. And then we need more than just, well, I'm going to say no again and give you, you know, 200 blank pages. So I think <laughs> there's a thing here about how we communicate our faith to the world. Because if we only talk into the Christian bubble, then we can get very sloppy in our answers. And First Peter 3.15 says, be willing to give a reason for the hope that you have. So basically that you could argue the book. Actually, I'd say that if I'm going to be cheeky, we could talk about this later. I think the answer I land on the book is 90% no. And 10% depend, depends on the Muslim. Um, but generally, I land on no. But the book explains why. And the same is true the other way. If you meet someone who's perhaps slightly more kind of liberal or progressive, I know those labels mean different things in different settings. Um, but someone who says, well, I, I think it is the same. Again, obviously, you want to say, well, why is it the same? Uh, why do you think it's the same? And the reason I wrote the book is more people than you would imagine, Ryan, think the answer is yes. So to give you a couple of examples, we have this phrase Abrahamic faiths that does the rounds yeah. everywhere. If you haven't heard that phrase, where have you been living? But you know, to, to go Google it, <laughs> listeners, you'll, you'll find it. And there's this tendency to lump together Christianity and Judaism and Islam under that under that term. So there's yeah. that issue. You, then you find, you know, well-meaning Christian theologians, Miroslav Volf, very famous Christian theologian, loves Jesus, but he wrote a book in which he said Christians and Jews and Muslims worship the same God. And he thinks that's the way to build peace in the world, to recognize we do. Um, I was about to say the, the, the president-elect, of course, since I wrote the book, he's now your president. Joe Biden, on the campaign trail, um, said words to the effect of, it's the same God. You know, we need to recognize we have all this in, in common and, and build unity. Um, so there's so there's that idea uh, doing, uh, doing the rounds. And then lastly, of course, and we were chatting about this before the show began, you, of course, are a high school teacher and you're going to terrify your kids, by the way, by shaving that beard off. All your students are going to go, where's our, where's our lecturer, where's our teacher gone? Um, in a lot of context in education, right, you'll know this, things are taught to sort of jam them together. So we say, you know, Muslims have the Bible, uh, but Christians have the Bible, Muslims have the Quran, you know, Christians have, have Jesus, Muslims have Muhammad. And I think students will often take away from comparative religion oh, it's essentially the same God. You know, we're all worshipping the same God in our own different way. So that's why I felt the need to do it. And of course, my background in Islam. So I thought yeah. someone needs to do a book that takes this head on in a way that's accessible, engaging, hopefully funny, but also that you could give to a non-Christian friend. So this is not primarily designed for Christians, although it's helpful for Christians. It's designed for Christians to read and get into the hands of our friends who are not believers. Yeah, wonderful. And, uh, you know, I, I, as you mentioned that you talk about, you know, kind of how Christians view this, how maybe some non-Christians view, um, how do Muslims look at this question? Like, are, are there Muslims out there saying, hey, we believe in the same God, you know, we're, we're essentially the same in that sense, or, or is this not being claimed uh, by, yeah. by Muslims and Muslim theologians? Well, it's interesting you say that, because actually, yes, I, I sometimes get, you know, more kind of sort of liberal leaning uh, or sort of, you know, sort of spiritual but secular folks who get quite offended because, well, you know, is, this is unfair on Muslims. And I'm always very quick to point out, well, actually, Muslims are in, there are sort of two, there are two streams of thought within Islam. On the one hand, the Quran is very clear. It claims that the message of the Quran, the message that, you know, of Muhammad was the same as all the previous prophets all the way through. And so it's the same message. So therefore, obviously, QED, it's the same it's the same God. On the other hand, the Quran is absolutely, absolutely attacks, you know, very strongly the Christian understanding that Jesus 
was more than a prophet and was in fact God. The, the Christian understanding of the Trinity, of the deity of Jesus, strongly attacked in the Quran. So I know Muslims who would say, well, therefore, actually, Christians are, are actually not really worshipping the same God. I have Muslim friends who are convinced I'm worshipping, you know, three gods. God the Father, God the Son, and Holy, yeah. God the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, it can't be the same God. So actually, Islam is sort of split right down the middle. And in fact, the Quran mm. speaks with both voices here. So yeah, I know Muslims who would lean into the, you're all the same family of faith, you know, come on. I also know Muslims who are like, no, those Christians, you are absolutely, you're, you're basically polytheists in disguise is what you lot are. Yeah. One of the common uh, illustrations I get, and I've had the same thing, right? When I, I mean, one of the last conversations I had with a Muslim uh, at one of the local kind of big outdoor malls here uh, was, you know, he said, hey, do you have any beliefs or something? And I said, yeah, I'm a Christian. He goes, oh, uh, I have a question for you. Uh, so you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, you believe in the spirit, they're all gods. So you have three gods, you know, and kind of went into that objection and had a fun conversation with Fred Sanders, an expert on the Trinity, uh, discussing that kind of conversation. Um oh, but you often hear like, okay, so maybe it, what we're having here is like you, you Christians and you Muslims have a different understanding of who God is, right? So, so like, uh, you know, you may not know me as well as my students know me. And so, you know, a different aspect of me and my students know a different aspect of me. And maybe I only tell a few details about myself to a friend. Uh, all three people know me, uh, but you know that I'm a podcaster. My students maybe know me as a teacher or my whatever. You kind of get the ideas. Is um, w w is there any kind of truth to this idea of that we are, yeah, we're all worshiping the same being, but we have a different mm. idea of who that being is based on what that being has told us? Yes. Oh, that's a very good question. And and the thing I talk about in the in, in the early on in the book, Ryan, is there is there are a number of ways of thinking about difference. In fact, the analogy I use in the in the book is you know, uh, my, I use the example of the actor Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, I think he is the most wooden person ever to grace, you know, Hollywood soundstage. I think he's useless. He is absolutely rotten as an, an as an actor. I was, you know, when he, when he sunk in the Titanic, I thought he'd gone forever, but no, he popped back up again. Um, kind of thing. So I hate him with a vengeance. Well, I don't hate him. I hate his acting. My wife thinks he's the best thing since sliced bread and he should have had more Oscars and everything. So to hear us talk, you would think we're talking about a different person because I've actually have very vastly different opinions, but we're talking about the same person. So it is possible to have very different views of the same person. On the other hand, it's also possible to have quite different, to think you're talking about the same person when you're not. So perhaps, you know, we, we get talking and, you know, there was that picture of us together and you go, oh yeah, we we're at that conference together, weren't we? You know, you must know my friend, Stephen. Like, oh yeah, I've got a friend called Stephen. Yeah, yeah, he was at that conference. Oh yeah, my friend Stephen was there too. Yeah, of course, now he's playing basketball because he's six foot two and very, oh, well, hang on, my friend Stephen's got one leg and he's in a wheelchair. Um, and it very quickly turns out that even though we've got the same name, as the Stevens we have in mind are totally different. And in fact, very quickly as we go on, we discover the attributes become more and more, it's obvious we're talking about different person and then one other thought for you it's also possible to agree on the on the office and disagree about the identity so for example you know suppose we have a little debate about who is the current president of the usa and you know you're convinced i'm convinced it's it's uh it's 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 joe biden and you're convinced it's donald duck um we might argue who might make the better president and our politics might come out at that point but clearly we don't believe in the same president. If you, and right. if you went away saying, Oh, Ryan and Andy believe in the same president, they believe in one president. You've got it completely wrong, actually. Yeah. We acknowledge there is a president, but when you ask the question, the identity that becomes different. And this is the question the Bible is concerned with. The Bible is not so much concerned with the question, is there a God, you know, even the demons believe in God and tremble. 
says the book yeah. of James. The Bible is concerned with the question, who is God? And that's the question we need to be asking. When you ask that question, the Bible and the Quran give you radically different answers. Yeah. And I think that's good because, you know, just in last week, I, I wasn't able to do a show because I was out in Utah on a maven trip, um, having conversations with people, you know, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and and trying to help them see this fundamental difference of, um, you know, it's not it's not these characteristics or qualities that, that can both be true about the same person at the same time. Right. So I'm a teacher and I'm also a husband. Well, I can be both. Uh, but as the description that you have described here is uh, you can't be six foot five and five foot ten. Um, you can't you know, be about, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, these are fundamentally different. And so kind of as we maybe jump into some of the uh, maybe yes. ideas or doctrines of God then and kind of one of the big areas that I want to discuss as we jump through a few different areas here. And again, if you're watching live, you can post in your questions on questions that you want to have answered about Islam and Christianity. Um, what would be some of those characteristics that maybe we can say like, uh, yeah. this is a fundamental difference that is, is contradictory that cannot be both true at the same time versus, um, you know, maybe God sent Muhammad and he sent Jesus. And so they both can be sent by God sort of thing that can both be true. Yeah. Well, let me begin. I, in the book, I offer five um, differences. I look at the, um, I look at the fact that uh, the God of the Bible is a God who is, uh, he's relational. He's a God who can be known. He is a God who is holy. He's a God who is love. And he's a God who has suffered uh, in Christ um, and show how those characteristics are, are not just ignored. They are often outrightly just, you know, completely repudiated by the Quran. So let's just take the first one. We'll talk about that for a moment. So so the God of the Bible is a God who's who's relational. You know, that comes through every page of Scripture. In fact, quite literally from the last in my certainly in my Bible depends on the print size, whether this works in your Bible. First page of the Bible. Well, so the first double page spread. We have Genesis three, verse eight. We have God walking and talking in the garden with Adam and Eve. So God creates everything and then steps into creation. Last page of my of my Bible, I have I have Revelation 21, which promises how the new heavens and the new earth, God will uh, dwell with us um, and wipe away every tear from our eyes. So that close, you know, intimacy again. And of course, right in the middle of the Bible, you have Jesus, you know, God in, in, in person. Uh, and so really come to, to come walk and talk with us. And then either side of that, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, relationality everywhere. You know, God appears personally to Abraham. He appears to Moses at the burning bush, reveals to Moses his very own personal name. Time after time and time, he's a God who's relational and invites, the Bible invites its readers into a relationship uh, with God. Uh, they might know him, not just know about him. And so that theme is everywhere. And of course, what's the primary title that we're invited to call God in the Bible? It's God is Father. Um, yeah. You know, that very relational language. All of that is gone in the Quran. There is no trace of it. God, Allah is the master. We are servants. Our job is to obey. And the other thing, Ryan, of course, the, that's interesting is the Quran retells biblical stories and then removes any relational bits. So God, Adam and Eve in the garden is there in the Quran, but you don't read of Allah walking and talking. Paradise is interesting. We may come to that later. You know, the description of paradise is amazing in the Quran. You know, rivers of wine, fruit trees, uh, women, uh, you know, virgins for the men to enjoy. But um, God is absent. There is nothing of the presence of God hmm. there. So the, Quran the Quranic God is a non-relational God. That's a pretty basic category. You know, you and I are relational beings. I believe, yeah. by the way, because we're made in the image of God. Rocks are not. There is not. Yeah. There is no sort of halfway ground between a rock and a human being. One has personhood and relationality. One doesn't. And it's the same with the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran. So what would it look like then for kind of a Muslim in making the claim of, you know, having a love for God or, or, or that sort of thing? Like, what is that? 
I mean, maybe that claim isn't made, but you know, uh, what does that kind of relationship look like of this is my God who I love and I worship uh, compared to a Christian? Well, one of the things, a couple of things that's interesting there. Firstly, what's interesting, and I, I, noticed, this, I noticed this relatively late in studying Islam, that actually Muhammad is far more front and center for Muslims. I think because the fact he's, you can know about him far more easily. You know, there's a lot of information in his biography and his character. You can get a sense of, of him. And isn't it interesting that Muslims will go, or more extremist Muslims will go nuts when somebody says something rude about Muhammad. So insult Muhammad in many parts of the world, you are in real trouble. In fact, even in the West, you need to be careful. Um, you know, don't draw, don't go drawing cartoons of Muhammad if you don't kind of value uh, your personal safety. Not the same for Allah. In fact, I once had a Muslim friend say, oh, we're not worried. You can say what you like about Allah, but say about Muhammad and I will punch you. I remember thinking, mm. oh, that's interesting. Um, so Allah is almost a sort of distant, sort of unknowable figure. And then I think what's interesting, when if a Muslim says they love God, and they will say they love God, don't use that language. Um, I think it's good just to ask the question, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by it? What does it mean to, to love to, to love God. And often what I've discovered it will do is it turns into the idea of just service and obedience. Well, I love God because I, I do his commands. So go, oh, that's okay. That's, that's part of it. But surely it's more, more than that. If somebody said to you, you know, why do you, why do you, you know, why do you, how do you love your wife, Ryan? I hope you'd have answers that go beyond, well, I take the trash out. That's what I meant. I love my wife. There's nothing about love actually means, you know, I think it's the idea of self-sacrifice of, 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 of putting another person, First, in terms of Christians wanting to know God, and yes, we want to serve Him absolutely because it comes out of love. But also, the other piece that's missing in Islam is love in Christianity. Of course, is responsive. Um, we love because He first loved us, as the Bible says. And the, I think the whole of Christian living and discipleship and ethics actually flows out of what God has done for us in in Christ. Philippians two, a great place to see that. You know, because yeah. Jesus gave Himself for us, uh, therefore live differently. And of course, that whole framework is missing. Yeah. there in, in Islam. Yeah, I think that's good. And you know, today is trash day. And so I did actually take the trash out last night. So I, I check I checked that box. My love is good. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's good is it, a very difference in relational being. And I think one that I hear often, and, and the second one that you do bring up in the, in the book is, is this idea of, of God can be known. And so I think maybe Christians maybe have some misunderstanding on, on what this looks like It's like, well, doesn't Allah kind of reveal himself in the Quran. And, and so um, uh, what is kind of the, the big difference there about this, the knowability of God uh, between Christians and Muslims? Well, I think the knowability piece is, is interesting because if you read the, um, if you read the Quran, one of the things you get struck by very quickly is that, is that what the Quran claims to be revealing is God's will. And in fact, will is one of the big categories in the, in the Quran, possibly one of the biggest categories in the Quran, that, 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 that term, Allah's, Allah's will, Allah's desire. And so the Quran is full of laws and commandments so certainly if you want to know how to please allah the quran would give you lots of information um you could go okay i know what i'm supposed to do here but if you want to actually know about god himself know you know who he is what his identity is how, his character uh, and so that's all completely missing that's not that's not there it's it's you know there's the quran doesn't really play with that with that uh with that note it's almost like i often think the quran in some ways is a bit like a violin with one string actually you know uh, the bible has multiple strings yes it you can there are god's commandments there but it's much more the quran has stripped all that away and there's one string and it's law 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 um the bible on the other hand you know uh, goes to great extent to reveal god's character and god's heart i mean starting with moses and the burning bush we might point to that as a great place to start there's god revealing his own personal name to moses pretty amazing actually when you think about it here is the creator of the universe revealing to a mere mortal his own personal name 
Um, throughout the Old Testament, we feel you know we see God revealing His character and His and His heart. Um, you know, we read about His heart grieving over people. God doesn't just merely you know express wrath and judgment at sin. We regularly read of God's heart was was grieved. Um, then we come to you know that very famous verse in Jeremiah, you know, which many Christians memorize if they memorize verses. You know, let not the wise boast in their wisdom, nor the strong boast in their strength, but that the one who boasts boasts in this, that they understand and know me. And then the idea of knowing God, of course, is at the heart of the incarnation in John 14, where, you know, I think it's Philip says to Jesus, you know, show, show us the father. We want to, we want to know the father. And, and Jesus says to him, do you not understand me after all this time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the, the father. And so the whole point of the incarnation is that we might know who God is. And of course, in Christian theology, if you want to really see the greatest revelation of God and to know him the most clearly, look at the face of Jesus, um, because that's how we see we see God. So that, yeah, that theme's all over the all over the New Testament, all over the Bible, and so it's missing um, from the Quran. Yeah, Jesus being that image of the invisible God. Now, I'm kind of curious because uh, you know, in the in the conversations that I've had, and as I mentioned, you know, uh, at the mall, is uh, it almost is like the Muslims I talk to is God is so holy and is so amazing. Like therefore to place Jesus or someone at the level of God, right? That's committing one of the greatest sins that you can commit is, is to try to make something equal to God because God is so utterly transcendent and holy and unique. Um, so when you kind of bring up this idea of the, of one of the big differences is that uh, the God of Christianity, Yahweh is holy uh, and Islam rejects these characteristics. What are you talking about there? Because in the conversations, you know, I've had is, no, God is so holy. You, you. That's why we maybe can't know Him, or because you can't make anything else equal to Him. Well, it's interesting. One of the things I talk about in the um, in the book, fascinatingly, I was just I was just pulling up the section, just double checking my stats, was that actually what's what's fascinating. You know, you would think that holiness is a big theme in in the Quran, and I always say, I'm, I, you know, the book is grounded in the Quran. Yes, you might meet a Muslim who believes that X or a Muslim who believes Y. I'm interested in what's the what does the Quran say because I'm a Quranic. Right. The term for for holiness in the Quran only occurs actually ten times, and four of those times is a reference to the Holy Spirit, which Muslims think is the angel Gabriel. So there's only actually six times where the Quran actually uses that title for for God, which is interesting. And I and I actually think there's a reason for that. I think in biblical theology, you know, as Christians, we're used to the idea that holiness actually connects into God's character. You know, it's when you talk about God being holy, it's his character as, as, as one who is utterly good, utterly righteous, utterly, uh, utterly holy. And that's what it means. Come to the Quran. Well, we've got a God who doesn't reveal his character. So you can't actually know that God is holy. How could you how could you know that? So you might be told that, but you have no you know, you can't actually get any insight into that. So I think the Quran is far more concerned. Power is the biggest category. But the, 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 the phrase that occurs the most in the Quran as, as like a sentence or a statement about God is that he ha God has power over all things. Uh, that, that phrase occurs about 80 times in the Arabic. And that's the, the Quran's resounding message. Allah is the one who has power. Allah is the one who has power. He just wills a, th he wills a thing that it is. Your job is to, is to obey. And you obey not because so much in Quranic theology because God is, is holy and righteous and, and you want your character to look like, like his, um, you know, you know, in the Psalms, it says, I think it's in the Bible, it says, you know, be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. That would make no sense in Quranic theology. We can't know that God is holy. And how can we be holy as God is holy? Hmm. Whereas the New Testament, I think the Bible does have that, that kind of idea that no, by the inward transformation of the spirit, we want to become more like God.
Whereas in the Quran, no, God is the one with the power. You're the one who isn't. Your job is to obey because he is the supreme authority in the universe. It's an authority model, not a righteousness model. Yeah, I think that's good. Now, uh, I think that's a kind of a, a good foundation, at least, uh, for our conversation and, and seeing some of these key differences between the doctrines of God of Christianity and Islam. Again, if you want to get a little more in depth, there are a few more points that you can pick up here in the book uh, that Dr. Bannister has written. Um, coming back, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, one of the one of the common things again that you kind of hear is is what I mentioned at the beginning of well, Christians believe Jesus is God, Muslims say Jesus is not God, therefore not the same God. Uh, what would you think and how would you respond to this sort of reasoning to argue that the answer to your mm. question, do they worship the same God, is no? It's um, it's certainly an answer that as Christians we might be tempted toward, right? Because it's Jesus who is who is unique. And so it's very easy to make the assumption to go, well, that, OK, let's focus the differences there. And that's not unimportant by a long way. I've got a whole chapter in the book on that. The problem, Ryan, if we're not careful and we too woodenly go, Okay, Christians include Jesus and the identity of God. Muslims don't. Therefore, it's not the same God. What do we do with our Jewish friends? Because our Jewish friends do not believe Jesus is God. They don't believe he's the Messiah, actually, let alone God. So do we really want to be in a position where we are saying oh, to, to a Jewish friend, actually, you haven't got the right God, buddy. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. I'm not sure the New Testament will be comfortable with that. You know, Paul never took that approach in the New Testament. And boy, he had some pretty strong arguments with with the Jewish leaders, but never does he turn around and go, you guys are worshipping the wrong God. Um, he sees them as brothers and sisters who have missed out on the biggest news at the heart of their faith, that, you know, it's Jesus is the Messiah and more than the Messiah. And he's always wanting to, you know, his passion to win them, them back. So I don't like that answer because of what it does with Judaism. Um, that's why I took the approach I took in the book of saying what stands out for the God of the Bible in both Old and New Testament. And if you read the folks who read the book, you'll see when the chapter I have on the on the question of God's identity, for each of those characteristics that God is relational, noble, holy, love and has suffered. I start in the Old Testament. I don't go bang straight to the new. I show that theme is there in the Old Testament. I then show how it's there in the new. And then I show how Jesus most perfectly expresses it. All of those themes of who God is come so most beautifully through in Christ. And therefore I say to uh, with Muslims, the reason I don't believe it's the same God is the Quran does not describe a God who is relational, noble, love, holy, and has suffered. And on top of it all, it <coughs> doesn't have a place for Jesus. In the case of our Jewish friends, they're so close. I think of Acts 17 and the unknown God, where Paul is like, you are so close. And that's what I want to say to a Jewish friend. It's like, come on, you've got the Old Testament. Come on, you can see all these things. Take a look at Jesus. So that's yeah. why I would take that approach. I think it's it we need to be sometimes when particularly those of us who are keen on apologetics and you know mounting arguments, be careful that you don't come up with what sounds like a brilliant argument, but that theologically it's a bit a bit clumsy. Yeah. Well I, I will admit that uh one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is I heard you discussing this topic on Unbelievable with Justin Priorly and and you mentioned how that's not always the best answer and I'm like I have given that answer before. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, wanting fair, to talk to you. Ryan, I used to. Yeah, That used to be my answer. And then I ran across that issue. I had people ask me that question and that got me thinking, <laughs> oh, oh, hang on. And that's when I began the, the bigger journey into going, well, okay, let's take the camera lens, you know, right back, take a wide angle shot, as it were, and go, okay, how does the Bible answer the question, who is God? If you put that question to the Bible, how does yeah. the Quran answer that? 
that question. And for the Bible, start with the Old Testament. As Christians, too often we forget about the Old Testament. It was the it was the scripture for the first the early Christians. It's pretty important. So yeah. If we start there, then then that that orientates us. And then you get Jesus as the as the icing on the top, the cherry on the top. You still everything points to Jesus, and you get a really good high Christology. But also the other thing, you come to appreciate Jesus more because you're like, oh my word, all of these themes of who God is that are there all over the scriptures, and we see them there. In sort of slight, sometimes it's slightly shadowy form, sometimes it's more clearer. They're all clearly there in Jesus. And so Jesus becomes this lens through which you can see the rest of the scriptures. And I think that is itself the scriptural way to do theology. Yeah, and I think that's helpful, like I said, uh, because I did get a comment on this video when I said I was going to be interviewing you that said, Muslims don't think Jesus is God. That's all you need to know. And, and so I pushed back knowing, you know, and, and having read the book and, and hearing your interview on Unbelievable. And I said, well, so would you apply the same thing to Jews? And the answer was, yes, they, they don't worship the same God. And, you know, and I do think that's kind of interesting because we do see, you know, the, the Jews worshiping and believing in the God of the Old Testament, which, you know, is Yahweh, uh, but just not accepting well, the yeah. revelation that, that has been given of this Jesus is, you know, the image of the invisible God and the Messiah. And well, so it is exactly. an interesting, it's, sticky it's, question that needs a little bit more conversation, I think. It does. And I would say, yeah, to, you know, with all due respect to your respondent, correspondent, I would just gently say, well, if, if, if Jews don't worship the same God, someone forgot to send that memo to the first Christians. Um, I mean, the, the place where you'd, you, the interesting thing is to, I would actually, the person who's listening to that, you know, who wrote that, ever watches this, I'd say, ask yourself the question, where would you expect to see that argument made in the New Testament? And the place I would expect to see it is the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews, go, you know, goes to the Old Testament and goes and basically demolishes it bit by bit. You know, you guys think it's all about the temple. Well, there's something better than the temple. You guys are fixated with the priesthood. Well, here's the true high priest. Sacrifices, nah, they've been replaced. That would be the perfect place to go. And by the way, your view of God is wrong. It's the wrong God. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't go there. And so I think that tells me that is not a scriptural. That's not so. We just need to be very, very, very careful because the other thing that comes through for me as I read the New Testament is 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 God's love for His people. Um, God has not forgotten the Jewish people. We need to be praying for them. You know, I have friends who do ministry among the Jews. I have friends who are Jew Jewish believers in Christ, which is incredible when you meet those men and women. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just be very careful um, how you deploy that argument. Yeah. Now, one of the conversations I had with with Dr. Fred Sanders when we discussed the Trinity is this idea. <coughs> Man, this coffee is not helping with this little tickle I no. have in my throat. <laughs> I didn't grab water. Um, actually, need tea, you see. We need to inculcate you. It's all things British. You want a good, honest mug of tea, not this coffee stuff, you know. Well, actually, I, I saw a, I saw um, there's a meme floating around on Facebook, and, you know, memes are always true. Um, and it said something like, um, if you switch from coffee to tea, it is guaranteed to remove 97% of whatever happiness you have left in life. Um. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm not sure that's true. No, you need to try tea. I, I bet if you, if you crazy guys hadn't thrown it all into Boston Harbor, you, know, you, you would have discovered it ages ago. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. All right. Um. Moving on. Let's move on. Yeah, back moving on. Back to the up. back to the Trinity, right? So, what are the what are the common things you hear? in conversations about the Trinity, and I had this conversation with Dr. Fred Sanders uh, in the interview I had with him, is that the Trinity actually provides uh, for God to have one of his essential attributes to be love, because you can have uh, the loving relationship within the triune God from all of eternity. And you often hear this contrasted against Islam, where if God is all by himself, uh, he doesn't have anyone to love, to express love, or to be loved, you know, before uh, creation. And so I've heard this kind of in a Trinitarian conversation. I love 
love to kind of hear your perspective as an expert in Islam of this idea of saying the, the Muslim conception of God cannot be loving, essentially attribute of love because of being all by himself, alone prior to creation. Oh, I completely 100% agree. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so it sounds like, you know, previous guests has talked about this, but let me try and add a, add a few things onto, onto that. Yeah, so as you describe it, you know, a God who is who is totally indivisibly one, obviously can't be a God who's inherently loving, because love requires both subject and object. You can't just say, I am a loving person. There needs to be another for whom you show that love. So that would mean, of course, the Allah of the Quran would first have to create something in order to love it. So if he is a loving God, he's now dependent upon his creation, because he can't be that without creating something which is hugely hugely problematic the other strange thing you get actually ties into something we talked about a moment ago ryan with relationality if you think about it the god of the quran before the moment of creation he was a non-relational entity there was only allah there was nothing nothing else no angels no other creatures no human beings it was just him completely alone um and therefore that he was not relating to anything at the moment of creation he then you know becomes a relational entity all these things to relate to that's a pretty drastic shift as i say things are generally either relational or not relational rocks not relational human beings relational so that is a bit of a philosophical puzzle looks like god changed in a major way coming over to christianity we don't hit that problem so in first john where it says god is love makes perfect sense because before god created anything the father loved the son the son loved the spirit the spirit loved the father and so on but one last thing follows from this as well at the center of Christian theology is that God's primary relationship to us is father. You know, that's how Jesus taught us to pray. Our father, we got called God father, Abba, father. Um, well, it becomes quite important if you think about it to go, well, is that just a title God made up or is he actually a father? And to go, because of the Trinity, the answer is yes. Before the creation of the world, um, God, the father was God, the father, because of the relationship to God, the son. And so our heavenly father is a heavenly father he has always been a father he will always be a father and when we become christians to use to, to borrow the language from i think it's romans 8 you know we are adopted into god's family it's quite amazing that you become not a slave but a son or a daughter jesus becomes our heavenly brother and we are literally adopted into that family and that's an incredible promise it's an incredible status what it means to be a christian and to be in christ and i have in complete confidence it's true because god didn't wake up one morning and go yeah you know what i think i'll be a father he's been a father from eternity uh, so i think he knows a thing or two about what it means to be a father yeah i think that's good now um i'd love to kind of maybe hear your thoughts on this as well and like i said i've kind of covered topics like this in, in the past it's been a little bit uh but i i do believe that you know i hear some of maybe the the best uh, clearest uh descriptions depictions of the trinity coming from maybe former muslims like a nabil Qureshi or, or something like yeah. that uh because of having this is one of the big central kind of key issues to work through uh to understand the nature of god and how god is triune um and so maybe i'm kind of curious if, if there is a muslim who is watching and trying and maybe has that kind of uh, maybe that issue with the Christian view of God. Maybe how would you uh, describe God being Trinity and that not maybe being a, a problem? How would you kind of portray this to someone maybe who is a Muslim watching to, yeah. to help them understand the Christian view of God? Well, I think there's a there's a couple of ways you can you can think about it. One way of, to begin thinking about it is uh, I've often had this conversation with with Muslims. Is start at the level of going, look, could the Trinity be theoretically possible? Is it is it theoretically possible 
that the internal character of God is not is not one person, but that God is one nature in three persons. Now, if your Muslim friend says, no, it's not, then you can ask, well, for, before you even talk about Jesus, why is it not possible? I'm intrigued why you as a human being think you have the ability to, you know, talk about the internal nature of God. That does seem to be quite a degree of hubris. Um, unpack that one for me. Because I think, I don't see any reason why it's possible, but it's impossible. It's not a contradiction. You know, my philosopher's hat on, it's not a contradiction to say God is one in his nature, but three in his persons, or as you put it in, in more everyday language, God is one what and three who's, you know, yeah. as human beings, we are one what, you are a human being and you're one who, you're, you're Ryan. Um, I'm one what and one who, but God is, is one what and three who's. That's not, that's not a contradiction. Right now the question becomes, okay, it's theoretically possible. How do we know if it's happened? That's what we now want to know. Is that the case? Uh, and how might we know? And I like going that way because then we can say, well, okay, for Christians, it's all about Jesus. It's not theoretical. Let's take a look. At Jesus, why is it that Christians worship Jesus as God? That's the question I want to get to, because and that's where I go in the eighth chapter of the book. Because the, there's a couple of things there, of course. First is the fact that Christians have always worshipped Jesus. That's the point I always think it's hugely important for Muslims to hear. Worshipping Jesus was not something that was made up in the third century. Every, Literally every page of the New Testament has the worship of Jesus on it somewhere um so you know you begin look at the book of revelation where jesus portrayed as a, as a lamb you know standing and on the very throne of of god um you look at philippians 2 where we're told that every knee will bow every tongue confess that's language actually in the old testament was applied to yahweh applied to jesus in the new testament page after page after page the early christians prayed in the jesus name they sang songs to jesus they cast out demons they baptized in his name look at look at the pages of church history every christian group we know of worshipped jesus even the even the weird unorthodox ones who believed other weird things all worship jesus and then i say to muslims this now gives you quite a nice little dilemma either jesus is the worst religious teacher ever he was fundamentally useless he was completely incompetent because he hadn't wanted people to worship him but he failed to pass that pretty basic message on um or or he said things and he did things and he made claims that especially in the light of the resurrection the first Christians were like, oh, my word, this really was God himself. And what's interesting, I like to come at it that way, Ryan, because sometimes as Christians, we like to come at it from above. We want clever philosophical and theological constructions. And we want to talk about the Trinity in the abstract. That's not New Testament Christology. New Testament, it begins with Jesus, it begins with the life and ministry of Jesus and the resurrection, then going off like a like an atomic bomb. And the first Christians going, oh, my word, you know, this guy was crucified for blasphemy, which he was. He was crucified. That was that was what got Jesus crucified, was claiming right. to be God. Um, you know, go read uh, the end of Mark, Mark chapter 14 or 15, the trial before Caiaphas. You know, Caiaphas says, are you the son of the most high? And uh, rather than go, oh, no, you've got it wrong. Jesus quotes Daniel 7 at him. You'll see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, that was basically that generated that huge reconfiguration. Of theology and then christians began figuring out okay now we know that this is who god is now we need to figure out what does that mean and that's when you get later christian theology you know experimenting philosophically and finding ways to explain the trinity and, and so on but if you start there no wonder people get confused start with yeah. jesus and that forces muslims to the question who do you say that he is that was the question jesus asked the crowds and asked the disciples mark chapter 8 who do you say that i am yeah. and i'm sorry prophet is not the right answer um because prophets don't go around making the claims that jesus did so that's how i yeah. would that's longer answer but that's how i'd approach it ryan start uh, yeah you, go, on, go ahead 
Oh, no, I was just saying, I think that's a, a good approach. And, and I like what you said, you know, of you often hear the claim of, of that Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, and, you know, you have different times where Jesus said, you know, I and the Father are one. Well, that's not claiming to be God. But then like, well, then why did the Jews, after making that claim, why did they try to kill him? Right. And so you, you have them claiming this is blasphemy uh, and ultimately crucifying for blasphemy. And so, you know, they must have understood something that maybe we might be missing if we're saying that Jesus never claimed to be God or committed blasphemy or anything like that. Yeah. Well, let me just add something to that. I mean, I've, I, there's there's two ways you can approach that of course you'll often hear muslims will say things like yeah where did, you, did jesus never claim to be god you can actually turn that around and go well actually nowhere did he say i'm not god actually nowhere did he say the words i am not god um so like touche so what we need to do is look at the claims he made and um if i say um i could say to you i am the president of the usa you think it's joe biden and it's actually me um <laughs> i could do it that way or if i wanted to equally make that claim i could say you know what I, I get to travel on Air Force One. That's my plane. The Oval Office is my office. I am the supreme commander of the of the US Army or whatever. You know, all those things I could claim. And you go, okay, who the heck does he think he is? He clearly thinks he is the president because you can't make those claims otherwise. And similar with Jesus. Yeah, there's the things you mention. The other place I, I, I'll often begin with Muslims because they get this. Two places where Muslims get it. Mark chapter two is the, you know, the, the healing of the paralytic. You know, the, the chap is lowered through the roof by his friends because he can't walk. And if you remember the story, Jesus forgives the guy's sins. And then the Pharisees and the religious leaders go nuts and get really angry. And then you always stop and say to Muslims, why do you think they're angry? And every Muslim I've walked this through, walked them through this, gets this because the guys claim to forgive sins. Why is that a problem? Well, that, well only God can forgive sins. Absolutely. Now let's see what happens next. And Jesus just basically messes with their heads. Now, I love the way Jesus approaches that in that story. Well, okay, dudes, which is easy to say. Your sins are forgiven or you're healed. Or to show I can do the former, I'll do the latter. You know, <laughs> chew on that one, boys. Um, and then the other place to go, which is interesting, is the Sermon on the Mount, um, where Jesus will often quote the Old Testament and say, you have heard that it was said, quotes the Old Testament, and I'll say to you. And I contextualize that for Muslims saying, okay, you go to the mosque on Friday. The imam stands up and he says, you know, you've heard that it was said, and he reads the Quran, and he closes it and goes, well, actually, I say to you. Are you going to go... Oh, that's all right. Yeah, that's fair enough. Or are you going to say, what the heck just happened? That's that's blasphemy. That's the Quran. That's the, the you know, Allah's final word to mankind. How can you treat it like that? Exactly what Jesus did, which gives you only two options, really. Either this guy was, well, three options, you know, C.S. Lewis territory, right? The, the trilemma. Either this guy was, was a lunatic yeah. or just a wicked, <clears throat> wicked blasphemer. Or else he actually had the authority of which he spoke. There is no neutral option. There is no, oh, he's a good prophet option. He didn't yeah. let you have that option. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here, here in the last, you know, maybe we've got about 10 or 15 minutes left. Um, I, I wanted to kind of maybe hit on a few other things and, and try to help some Christians understand some differences and so that maybe they can have better conversations, right? Hopefully uh, using this conversation to equip Christians and Muslims to have better conversations on this topic and dialogue better. Uh, but I don't know how well maybe Christians are versed in what the Quran is, where it came from, uh, how it came to be. Uh, so maybe what would you say are some of the key uh, details are key things that Christians should know uh, about the Quran. Well, as you say, a lot of Christians are unfamiliar with the Quran and with Islamic theology in general. And if you want to reach out to Muslims, take the time to get equipped. You know, First Peter three fifteen says, "Always be prepared." Be prepared. Best way to do that, you I think you mentioned him earlier, Nabil Qureshi, um, the late Nabil Qureshi, you know, convert from Islam to Christianity, dear friend of mine, um, died a few years ago with with cancer. He is he is much missed. Um, yeah. Well, Nabil wrote uh, a wonderful book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, which is both his testimony 
So it's a very powerful story, but woven into it is lots of information about what Muslims believe. Yeah, so if you want to get your head around Islam, go read Nabil's book. Um, main thing I would say, though, when it comes to uh, understanding the, the Quran, uh, is to realize that it's a very different book to the book of the Bible, uh, to the, the Bible. So as you talk about the Quran, just be careful you don't drift into that assumption where we have the Bible, they have the Quran. One of the big things that trips Muslims up, you see, is the Quran. Every verse in the Quran is written as, as if it's the first person speech of God speaking. Um, the Bible does that in places, but also has lots of other different genres and styles of writing in it. And Muslims often get confused because they open up the Bible expecting to find it like the Quran and it isn't. So as a Christian and wanted to help your Muslim friend, it can be helpful. Read a few pages of the Quran, get a feel for it. Obviously think about, hmm, this is quite different to the Bible. And then make sure you take lots of time to explain. I find the best way to introduce your Muslim friends to the Bible is Jesus. And as you're talking to a Muslim, look for opportunity to say, hey, this reminds me of something that Jesus said, or this reminds me of something that Jesus did, or this reminds me of a story that Jesus told. And that gives you a nice bridge into the gospels and say hey would you you know would you be okay if i if i read you this story that, that jesus once preached um rather than getting sort of big theological questions about the nature of scripture and so on try and get them to jesus yeah and you mentioned that in your book uh, that the the um the quran actually speaks more maybe about jesus or speaks a lot about jesus talks about jesus miracles um but at the same time like it doesn't like then take that and put Jesus maybe in a more unique spot. Uh, so, mm. so what does the Quran actually say about Jesus that maybe is maybe some yes. truth that Christians would believe? And, and but then how do they view Jesus in short? Just for you ask this, because I've just recorded a talk for a church just uh, up the road from you. Actually, uh, there's a church up in Silicon Valley who I'm doing a, a missions conference for online in a couple of weeks' time, and they've got me doing a talk on Jesus and Islam and Christianity. So this is fresh in my mind. So, yeah, there are about 90 verses in the Quran that talk about Jesus uh, and about 25 that mention him by by name. Because when Muhammad was preaching and teaching the material that became the Quran, he drew from existing traditions and sources. He he fished quite widely from Judaism and Christianity and pre-Islamic Arabian ideas. So Jesus turns up and it's interesting that he does Jesus in the Quran. We're told he does miracles. Uh, specifically, the Quran mentions he raises the dead, opens the eyes of the blind, heals lepers. Um, he animates a clay bird and brings a clay bird to life. That's actually a legend from the from the third century of the Christian era. Um, yep. The Quran is fascinated by his virgin birth. There's a, the two long virgin birth stories in the Quran, and um, and then there's some hint in the Quran that he's got a role on the day of judgment. And actually, later Islamic theology develops this extensively, and many Muslims believe that Jesus will come back at the end of time and fight the Antichrist and be involved at the end. And the Quran also has lofty titles for Jesus. He's called the Messiah. He's a word from God. He's a spirit from God. No other prophet in the Quran has any of this. But at the same time, the Quran also says he's just a prophet like the other prophets, rejects his crucifixion, rejects his uh, divinity. So the Quran, on the one hand, wants to bring Jesus down to size like every other Quranic prophet. But on the other hand, all these things are said about Jesus um, that don't fit. And in short, right, what I would say, and I stress this in the book again and again, the Jesus of the Quran doesn't fit. He does not fit. But the analogy I use in the book, and I had huge fun actually writing a sample of what this could look like, I said it's almost as if someone has taken Gandalf from Lord of the Rings and inserted Gandalf into Pride and Prejudice, uh, the Jane Austen story. <laughs> it just would not work. Gandalf would not fit there. He's not going to sit around having cucumber sandwiches and, uh, you know, and polite, genteel conversation. Um, that's not Gandalf. And Jesus doesn't fit the Quran because that's not his story. He belongs in the Gospels, where all those things that he does make sense. 
So I would use that tension actually with Muslims and push into that and say, what is going on? Why the heck's your virgin birth? Not the Quranic prophet has one. It makes no sense in the Quran. Why are these miracles? Why are these titles? What on earth is going on? And the Quran doesn't give the root of the answers. Yeah. And then again, you can use that to get to the gospels, which do. I think that's one thing I like about your books is the imagery and the uh, analogies, illustrations that you use of Gandalf in Pride and Prejudice. I think in, in your other book, The Atheistic Didn't Exist, there's something about the aardvark and the artichokes, and, and uh, <laughs> it was one of the titles. That's where and... I learned this, actually. In The Atheist Didn't Exist, we took 11 atheist arguments and just saw what would happen if we put them into a totally r ridiculous scenario and had a lot of fun. And that writing style, it turned out people liked. There's not enough comedy in apologetics. Yeah. So we brought a bit of that into this into this book because hopefully it helps people understand the the idea yeah um so kind of going along with what you just said there the, um if jesus is spoke more highly of than any other prophet in the quran uh why is there maybe a, a um a more emphasis put on muhammad as as the greatest prophet uh, rather than jesus well the funny thing is of course muhammad is only mentioned in the quran four times um you know you could read the quran and if you weren't careful you would have no idea who is the founder of islam but then of course you know, behind the scenes, as Islam is getting going, Muhammad is the is the central figure. He's the one who's preaching and teaching this stuff. And then in the second half of his career, he's the one who's you know, building this career and reputation as a military leader in Medina. So everything is centered around around him. And I always think there's a parallel with the power thing that we talked about earlier in the show that, you know, the central the central idea in the Quran for, for God is power. Well, I think in the pre-Islam, in the Arabia of Muhammad's day, power was what mattered a very tribal society and every different little tribe in the society had its leader and that man had the power and you respected that leader because the whole society is based upon power and respect and patronage and muhammad basically constructs a religion in that image and today that's exactly how it how it plays out that muhammad is the big man at the at the center of it. he's a tribal he's a tribal leader um, the trouble with that, of course, it misses the fact that, you know, in those kind of situations, tribal leaders are often deeply flawed individuals. And I think without, you know, we don't need to be unduly pejorative as Christians, but Muhammad was a flawed individual. He's no worse than any other tribal leader of the time period. But, you know, as somebody who is an example of the 21st century, I think he, I think I'm quite glad he's back in the seventh. That's where he belongs. And if I wanted to be deliberately confrontational, I'd say rather than compare Muhammad with Moses and Jesus, I'd compare Muhammad with Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan, you know, men who built great empires, but not necessarily people you'd want to uh, follow today. Yeah. Now, when I teach on kind of uh, uh, answering this question, is Jesus the only way? Uh, the way that I approach the question is by looking at different worldviews and seeing that every single worldview really uh, says that there's something wrong with us. Something is broken. And if there's something wrong with us, uh, then we have to figure out what is wrong with us and then what is that solution, right? So in a very right. simple sense, you could say, you know, secularism sometimes will say the problem is, you know, religion or kind of holding to these sort of religious truths and, and the freedom or the solution is, is freedom and is knowledge. And when we grow in our scientific abilities, maybe we're going to save ourselves or something like that. And you look at postmodernism, they might say the problem is these objective truths, these, these meta narratives that you're forcing on people. And again, the freedom or the solution to that is to give people freedom to kind of live how they want. Obviously, Christianity problem is sin. Jesus is the only solution to the forgiveness of sin. Um, how would you kind of uh, look at the difference there when it comes to Islam? What would Islam say is the problem with us and what would be the solution? Yeah. Couple of um, couple of things very quickly. I mean, like like me, you've often had people sort of say to you in your context, you know, you know, couldn't all religions lead to God? I expect that's a very common idea in our culture. It's quite fun to turn that spinning round and go, you do know there is only one religion that promises to lead you to God, 
you know, Buddhism does not promise to lead you to God. Uh, in so, you know, depending on which form of Buddhism, it really you know leads you to some sort of annihilation of the self and personal consciousness and everything. And the Eastern religions are the same. Um, Islam does not promise to lead you to God. It promises to lead you to paradise, but God is not present. Only Christianity actually promises to lead you to God. And you could be quite cheeky and say, you know, it's a bit disrespectful to take all the world's religions and say, no, 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 no. All the Buddhists and Muslims have got it wrong. I know they're all leading to God. Um, so I think let's at least look at the claim. But then, as I say, the way you do, it, I think, is, is helpful. And so very quickly on the um, on the what has gone wrong, what's fascinating, again, people assume it's the same in the two, and it's not. Islam, what's gone wrong is really human beings are weak and forgetful. God wants us to behave a certain way. Here are the commands that he would like us to obey, but we are weak and we are forgetful. So he sends, he, we need new commands because we, we trip up. Christianity says actually commands are not the problem um, because actually it doesn't matter how many moral instructions we have, we are still going to break them. We still have this tendency. We see a law, we're going to break it. And I always say to people, if you don't think that's true, watch children. You know, when my, when my son turns, my son is six. I remember when he turned sort of three or four, you know, was really discovering his own identity. You would say to him, you know, don't touch the chocolate cake. And at that, at that point, touching the chocolate cake is the only thing he wants to do. Um, you know, he knew well what the law was, um, but he still wants to break it. And we're the same because with this idea of sin that the Bible talks about, that our, our very nature is broken and, and corrupt. And what I think is interesting, I think most people recognize that when you help them through lived experience. Most of us have that experience that actually we can't keep our own moral standards, let alone God's for goodness sake. And so when it comes then to solution, Islam is tragic, actually. It offers more of the same. You can't, you're weak and forgetful. You can't keep God's instructions. So have some more and some more and some more. And I often say, actually, Islam's approach here sounds like you or I walking along the side of the riverbank, seeing somebody drowning and us shouting out, hey, you're drowning. Let me help. I'll throw you a bucket of water. To which the answer is going to be, I've got enough water, actually. Thank you very much. I don't need any more. And I think my answer to my response to Islam was actually law is we've got enough of it. Thank you. Um, what we need is some way of dealing with the fact we can't keep it. And then Christianity turns around and says, actually, what you need is a savior. Um, you know, you actually need someone to to, to, to rescue you. And the analogy, because, you you know, you say I, I like to use analogies. The one I came up with in the book that for me was quite I enjoyed because it's my kind of, you know, my kind of era. And I'm not writing and teaching. I love the outdoors, love rock climbing. Well, I'm, I'm not very good at all. Well, imagine I get into my my head that I'm going to climb. I'll climb El Capitan not too far from you in Yosemite one of the biggest rock faces in the world and i get about 400 feet up and get stuck and i'm going to die basically i haven't got very long before i fall off <laughs> I've, I've messed it up and then two rock climbers appear at the bottom of the rock face and i look down and one of them heaven above it's, it's alex honnold best rock climber in the world he starred in that national geographic film free solo he climbed that thing no rope he's been up and down it hundreds of times and alex starts shouting out advice you know move this way do this way do that move lots of advice and motivation next to him is an unnamed rock climber who i don't know who it is but that second guy shouts up, stay right where you are. I'm going to rope up and come and get you. Look, I don't care that the advice is coming from the best advisor in the world. That you know, Alex knows more about rock climbing than, than anyone else on the planet. But advice isn't enough. I need a rescue. So I'm going to choose the rescuer. Thank you. And the difference between Christianity and Islam is Islam offers advice. Christianity offers a rescue. And I think it's a rescue that we need. Wow, that is that is so beautiful and profound and, and so uh, good to hear it. And, and I think in that way, it's so helpful to, to imagine and, and to see that. Um, and just the last, maybe we only have about two minutes left. Um, what would you say kind of with all these differences in mind that we've discussed, and there's more that are in the book uh, that are so good. Um, what kind of what would you say to the, the high school college student who uh, is at school? 
uh, roommate or friend in class is Muslim? Um, how do they have better conversations? Uh, hmm. What would be your advice to them on how to reach out and to be good friends, uh, yeah. but also kind of evangelistic to that Muslim friend? Well, of course, the first thing I'd say is easy to read the book. That'll help you. And in fact, to, uh, all of, uh, if any of Ryan's students are watching, I'm sure Ryan will happily buy you as a gift a copy of the <laughs> No, very seriously. Um, if you get a chance to look at the book, it will help you. But I'll give you yeah. a, a, a brief answer. What I would say, firstly, take the time to have conversations with your, with your Muslim friend, roommate, whatever. So often as Christians, we open our mouths without listening. So, you know, open up by saying, hey, you know, you're, I, I think, am I right in thinking you're a Muslim? I've never really talked to a Muslim much before. Tell me what you believe. Ask lots of questions. Listen, you know, use your ears kind of first. And then, you know, wait for them to ask what you believe or once you've talked to them for a bit, find the opportunity to then say, well, that's interesting. I believe some different things. And then secondly, and this is hugely important, I think in the in the high school and university system, you will be, t others will be telling you that if you think that you're right and your Muslim friend is is wrong, that you're somehow being disrespectful. But that's not disrespectful. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the most loving thing you can do is to is to help them and point them to that that truth. Uh, you know, if you meet a friend at school who thinks that you know the way to deal with COVID is not to get your vaccination, but to inject you know bleach into your right ear, it is not loving to go. Well, I'll let them just you know have their own way. That's not a loving response when someone is following something that's going to damage or or, or hurt them. It's a nice controversial yeah. illustration for you. And <laughs> um, and I think it's the same spiritually. We're going, if we genuinely believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, we want to love our Muslim friends, we want to be compassionate and generous and listen, befriend them, um, but we want them to discover Christ. And of course, it's good to remind people it was Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So if you get in trouble for saying that, say, look, it's not me who's saying it. It's Jesus who said that. All I'm doing yeah. It's following the words of the master. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much. And no, I've loved the illustrations, the controversial things. I think my channel is going to blow up because I just interviewed the president of the United States. I think you made that claim. And so exclusive interview <laughs> right here. <laughs> uh, but Dr. Andy Bannister, thank you so much for writing this very helpful, uh, this book and for coming on the show and talking with me about it today. You are welcome. It's been fun as ever. All right, everybody, and thanks for being here. Thanks for watching. Again, go pick up a copy of this. All the links to what Dr. Andy Bannister is doing is down in the description below. If you're watching on YouTube, he's about to head off and record some podcasts for his uh, podcast network on Solus. Um, also, what, again, as I mentioned in the show multiple times, the Trinity is one of the big issues when it comes to Christianity and Islam. I have an interview that'll pop up right over here in just a little bit uh, on my interview on the Trinity with Dr. Fred Sanders. And then as always, follow on social media, connect, share this with a family or friend, help them have a better understanding of how to evangelize and make a difference for Jesus in this culture because that is what we are here to do as Christ ambassadors. So thank you all so much for watching. Pray that you have a blessed rest of your day. Continue to think deeply about God and Jesus because they are worth thinking about. Bye everybody.